We are back with the 16th episode of the Hubscale podcast. This week's awesome guest, Chuck Herrin, a member of the Forbes Council, CTO and board member of WIB, is on the show. We're going to dive into so many topics today around API security. This is an area where we play very close in as well. So very, very excited for this one. Chuck, it's great to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Very excited, like I said before. But I guess so everybody who doesn't know Chuck Herrin, uh, just give a quick introduction to yourself. Uh, sure. So uh, I've been playing in the InfoSec space for a couple of decades now. Um, I was uh, I was an attacker. Uh, and then I moved to the blue team in around 2004. Uh, worked at some uh, very large multinational companies in banking and insurance and various CISO roles uh, over about uh, 18 years. And then I moved into the creator space, right? So taking all the the battle scars and the tuition paid uh, in these big global companies and went into the building space as CTO for a fintech and now as CTO for Web and API security company. So uh, history is an attacker. Attacking was uh, was probably more fun. Defending was more profitable, uh, and at Web we get to do both. Uh, so it's a it's a great mashup, uh, and I'm working with a great team bringing uh, this uh, second generation of API security to market. Yeah, no, for sure, and that's uh, that's what we're going to dive in today about the API security and what Web specifically is doing in the market as well. And that leads us on quite quite well to the next kind of question as well. So tell me more about Web and what and what you guys are doing in the market. Yeah, so so what we are um, a group of uh, pretty experienced managers. Our co-founders are uh, serial entrepreneur uh, Gil Don, uh, Rana Hyan, who was a long time at Checkmarks. Um, one of our co-founders was CTO of uh, Israel's National Cyber Directorate. He was there 27 years. Our VP of R&D is a retired lieutenant colonel. So we bring a lot of experience uh, into the space. And the, the space that we're operating in is, is one of API security. And um, there's this uh, fundamental human element that keeps repeating throughout history where adoption of new technology uh, is, is uh, much more rapid than the adoption of the security that goes along with that new technology. So back e even in, in you know the, the 80s, when we first started rolling out the first desktops, uh, and then we went to the web, um, you know, the, the adoption of, of uh, the internet was years before we knew how to secure the internet. Uh, same thing with moving to the cloud. Uh, I wrote the cloud operating guidelines for a very, very large insurance company where I was, uh, I had a, an executive role um, in 2011 and Back in those days, you know, we we did things that you would never do today. But, but the tooling wasn't available yet. The management suites weren't available yet. The 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 adoption always outpaces the security. In the API space, APIs themselves aren't new. I mean, APIs are forty plus years old, but the adoption of a microservice based architecture has really exploded in popularity over the last several years for all of the advantages that it gives you with respect to uh, to, to velocity of delivering business value. The, the problem is this this change in architecture also changes your attack surface. And the defenders who are used to being able to, you know, just put a, a web application firewall in front of their their web application, they they tend to still think that works when their development teams are exposing and publishing APIs to the outside uh, and, and the the APIs that these microservices use. 
and it, and it doesn't. The attack surface is different. WAFs and API gateways don't understand things like attacks on business logic, which these APIs expose to the outside. And we're very much in a, in a phase right now where adoption has rapidly outpaced security, and it's only getting worse right now. It's only accelerating. So uh, Gartner's been estimating now for several years that APIs would be the number one attack vector as of 2022. They're also saying that uh, easily half or more than half of APIs will be completely unmanaged by 2025. And anecdotally, well, I can tell you what we see in the field is we, that's already happening. It's routine for us to come in and, and start working with a customer to find, find their APIs, inventory their APIs, figure out who's doing what, who owns these things, are they documented, what are they exposing, that type of thing. And they'll be off by a factor of two or three or five on how many APIs that they even have. And then assessing the risk and the vulnerability and managing these things, you can't do any of that until you have an inventory, until you understand your, your basic attack surface. So it's a really interesting space. The, the, it's much like the cloud, the adoption of the cloud. We knew for years that the adoption of the cloud was inevitable because it provided so many benefits to, to businesses. It's the same thing with adoption of microservices and, and the APIs that they use. The benefits and the ability to to spread out and have multiple teams working on things at different paces and abstracting the technology behind the scenes so you don't care what languages and frameworks they're using and rolling out these incremental uh, you know improvements to to these services the the bit the business value is is so profound it's not going anywhere um, it, it's only accelerating but the security teams and the defenders have yet to catch and even the attackers even the penetration testers have yet to catch up. Um, and so we're at this weird stage where we're kind of in a market education phase, which is why I'm so excited to be here on, on the podcast. Uh, and at the same time, with so many defenders not really aware of how API security is different from web security, which we can talk a little bit about today, uh, as well as how many APIs they're running in their own environment, first party, third party, and so forth. At the same time, our friends at Akamai tell us that API traffic is now 91% of web traffic. So it's it's because I think of the ever increasing velocity of technological development. Now we have the adoption that's gone so far ahead of security that it's still a blind spot, and it's also ninety one percent of web traffic. So it's 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 a fascinating space to be in, and it's a, it's a very interesting uh, problem set to try to solve. Yeah, no, no, for sure, and it's um it's a crazy space for sure, and even just finding that gap that ninety one percent percent of web traffic is literally everything basically it needs to be secure for sure so tell me tell me about web then specifically i know obviously i mean we've had a few conversations about this and, and the api security market is just absolutely booming you mentioned this early adoption but tell me more about web at the moment yeah so so what we what we know a little bit of history of the api uh, market, security market in general, and then I'll talk about what we're doing and what we're doing differently. So the API security market was born um, essentially out of uh, former operators from intelligence services that had been attacking APIs uh, as part of their offensive operations for years with impunity. Uh, the, the, the adversaries had no idea they were there. And when these when these operators left, they figured out, hey, there's probably a market for this, right? I'm I'm going everywhere, and in some of the case studies we can talk about later, I'll show you. Like these these vulnerabilities are very much still alive, and banks, and you know, diamond companies, and government agencies that we work with, we've got all kinds of case studies. And so they they came, they, these guys came forward, uh, and we work with some of them. 
and they started the, the first API security company. And, and they started with the approach of looking at production traffic. And what we've learned over the last several years is that that is a useful lens, but it is an insufficient lens to give you all the visibility that you need. And so what we at WIB are doing is we're working with these pioneers in the industry, and, and these are some of our earliest employees, and saying, if you could do it over again, knowing now what you know, with several years of experience, you know, trying to solve for this problem in the marketplace, what would you do differently? And that's the basis for WIB. And that's why we're calling ourselves the second generation of API security, because we've realized that it's, it's important to monitor production traffic. It's important to monitor and see what's actually coming across the wire. But there are too many blind spots that still remain if you aren't looking at all the right channels, if something is exposed, but you don't see anybody interacting with it. So you've got the, what we call uh, you know, zombie APIs. There's zombie APIs, there's shadow APIs, there's all of these things that you really need to get your arms around. So we look at the production traffic as one of our lenses, and we, and we also look directly into the source code. Uh, as a primary uh, lens for API enumeration, discovery, basic analysis of uh, you know vulnerabilities and weaknesses in design, and then the testing that you can do for APIs. There's multiple types of testing that you can do, all the way from the static analysis testing, actually in the code, through interactive and dynamic testing, all the way to uh, you know fully uh, you know professional API penetration testing, where um, you can use an experienced professional API penetration tester to beat up the APIs in ways that only humans can do. Uh, so, so machine learning and AI is very powerful. We get a lot of benefit from it, um, but it's not as creative as a skilled attacker. And so for, for companies that need to understand what is their attack surface, what are they exposed to, how do I prioritize this, how do I have context so I know how to allocate resources, uh, and then what what would a professional skilled attacker actually be able to exploit? We can help them with all of that from all the way from the, the code and the business logic that, that, you know, is part of the code all the way to the outside. And, and that's really the, the, the uniqueness of, of WIB's design is we really are looking at this at a holistic level, right? All the way from the code to the outside world. Yeah. And I think that's so cool as well, because I think you and I was talking about before is utilizing both machines and humans to get the best out of the results. I know multiple companies like Palantir, for example, they, they always utilize that same kind of situation where they had technology and the machines working with the humans to obviously work as a kind of a better holistic version as well. So, no, I absolutely love it. I really love it indeed. And I think the API security market is going to be just a huge, huge trend over the next few years as well. So just tell me more about the market and how you guys are going to really talk about the, the next maybe few years as well about your guys' journey. Yeah, absolutely. So you're completely correct. The, the, the market size is only growing as companies, you know, really start to understand more uh, about their exposure that they already have, as well as enter into new digital transformation projects, um, you know, that maybe they haven't taken before. Security concerns are the number one inhibitor of companies, you know, embracing the, you know, their digital transformations and, and these microservices and the APIs that, that, uh, that they use. And so our goal at WIB is, is to remove those uh, shackles and, and those, um, those barriers to being able to innovate safely, right? So one of the things that, that we kind of toss around the office is uh, we want our customers to be the second mouse, meaning that the, you know, uh, old saying in, in financial services, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese, right? So the, you know, the first mouse got his head cut off. By the time the third mouse shows up, the cheese is gone. 
we want our customers to be able to be that second mouse. So move quickly, move faster than your competition, but don't do it recklessly in in such a way that uh, that you know breach costs and embarrassment and and you know loss of uh, share value and all of the other things associated with the many 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 breaches that we see in this space. Don't let that happen to you. Like we know how to do this safely. Uh, we know how to put the telemetry in place, the monitoring in place, the testing in place, uh, so that you can innovate and and really take advantage of these new technologies. So we're seeing the market expand, you know, just massive expansion, three x and five x, you know, over the next several years, into you know tens of billions of dollars uh, by the later the second half of this decade, and. The reason for that still remains not so much that API security um, is driving that growth. It's the business value that the adoption of these, these new technologies drive. So the adoption is inevitable because you absolutely can out innovate your competitors. And if you don't do it, you're going to be that third mouse. So the CIOs and business leaders and chief risk officers, you know, they, they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. And our goal is to, to be the, you know, the, the guide to get them through that, you know, that narrow corridor of going too fast and exposing yourself to, you know, material issues, especially in regulatory regimes like, you know, Europe, GDPR and privacy concerns and not being left behind. Um, and I, I see some customers and potential customers doing it where we have uh, a, a bank that I, I've been speaking with. They, they've, they're all in on the concept of automating, uh, you know, data exchanges and things via APIs, but they they don't trust their security model enough. So they literally broke the communication chain and implemented a manual review to make sure that everything was working, which I understand why they did it, but you're not getting the value <laughs> of, of the technology if you're putting manual breaks in it. But the security concerns are so profound that that's what they feel they have to do to be responsible. And our goal is to show them ways that you can do it and be responsible. And via a regular cadence of testing, you know, pre-production and even testing post-production, give you the assurance that you're actually doing it right. So answering that question, how do we know? How do I know what I'm vulnerable to to the outside? How do I know what a skilled attacker would be able to do? You can't get that just based on vulnerability assessments and automated scans. You, you really need to beat these things up, um, you know, in, in that way to give you that full sense of validation as well. And so many cases when, when companies find themselves in a breach condition, what's really, really critical is that you're able to demonstrate that you exercised your due care and that you are, in fact, the victim of a crime, not some irresponsible actor that never deserved to have this data in the first place. So working with a company like Wib, where where we can, you know, this is all we do is API security. We we geek out on this stuff 80 hours a week. We can give you that assurance that yes, I'm doing the right thing. I relied on this trusted partner. They helped us. This is how we know. And even if something does go wrong, you're able to show that you exercised your due diligence and your due care uh, in a very fast, uh, you know, changing technology environment. So a long answer, but that that's what we're doing. That, those are the problems that we're solving for. We're trying to make it safe for our customers to innovate. Yeah, no, no, I, I, honestly, I find it so fascinating as well. And I think um, we've talked about in the past as well about with having the only API specific pen testers as well. And now that's kind of captivating the market. So touch on that a little bit if you can. So it's that's this is a lot of the fun stuff that I really like, right? And 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 it leads to a lot of the good storytelling in the space as well, because the the penetration testing, uh, you know, offering primarily is 
you know, we're, we don't really set out to be a pen testing company, but what we've learned uh, over over the years and going to market and talking to customers is because we're so early in this market education phase, many of them aren't sure they really have an issue. And so we can leverage the penetration testing with a small engagement to validate, is this something that you actually need to be allocating resources for? You know, if you're a CISO, if you're a defender, or if you're a CIO, I don't want you to have to go and spend your valuable internal political capital just convincing everybody that this is something you need to allocate resources to if you don't actually have any exposure, right? That, that That's only going to take money and, and resources away from other things that, that your business needs to be doing. And so we, we leverage the penetration testing as a way to make abstract concepts concrete. Like, okay, I understand APIs are, are a common vulnerability point. Are they vulnerable to me? Right. And are they exposing me? And and it sort of functions in that decision support. And so a recent case study that we just wrapped up here with a, a government entity, we tested about, you know, 2.8 to 3% of their external attack surface. We found nine issues, uh, including ways to enumerate all of their user accounts via API endpoints, uh, ways to elevate our privileges, lock out administrative accounts, uh, publish malware via their systems and push them down. And you can see all of these, you know, various ways that we can we can combine these various sort of low and medium level vulnerabilities into if I can enumerate all of your accounts and I can host malware on your servers, then I can clearly launch phishing campaigns and get people to download malware from your servers and then expand. Like that, those are the types of things that humans can do. And that, you know, served as a, a useful, uh, you know, decision support for that CISO who was able to go back to his management and say, hey, you know, I've been worried about this for a while. And this gives us validation that this actually is something that we need to take uh, a little bit more seriously. And so the API penetration testing is is a really valuable tool in that in that piece, as well as it's complementary to the platform, but it doesn't do governance. It doesn't do real-time inventory. It doesn't automatically generate your documentation. It's not the whole answer. Um, but if you are, for example, covered under PCI and you're moving towards version 4.0 of the PCI requirements, um, API penetration testing and the testing for abuse cases and logic-based attacks is now part of the PCI 4.0 standard. Uh, and so you need to make sure that it's covered. The The challenge in, as an industry is most pen testers don't know how to do it, uh, and um, they, they were never trained on this. So we we actually are partnering with a number of penetration testers, both here in the States and as well as in EMEA, to, uh, to augment their penetration testing offerings. To, to test for APIs specifically, because their, their teams have just never tested the APIs directly. They exercise the APIs as part of testing the web applications or the mobile apps that they're testing, but but we're actually attacking the APIs uh, specifically. And when I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine now that works in the General Services Administration in, in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, uh, she said that her group is responsible for oversight of, of cloud security for a number of contracts with the government agencies. And um, the the potent, the number of cloud engagements that they had purview over was 500 or so before the pandemic, and now it's over 6,000. And where penetration testing is required, um, they work with three penetration testers, uh, companies, and only one of them has API-specific uh, expertise, and there it's like one guy. 
<laughs> so, so I think that there's a big gap, not only in the defenders, but also in the testers to really know how to exercise and find these vulnerabilities in, in, in the APIs. And it's very common for us at, at WIB. We follow a lot of other red teams and penetration testers. And actually, what the case study that you and I talked about, you know, before the, the podcast, they had an internal team of penetration testers, a full team, over a dozen people. And they missed the attack surface that we were able to exploit because they they lacked that API-specific subject matter knowledge. Uh, and that's that's what we're bringing to the table as well. Like the, we, we are taking the insight from people who have been professionally attacking APIs for years, and we're not only putting that in our service offering, but we're also pouring all of that knowledge directly into the product in the way that we uh, the way that we solve for the problems at a platform level, right? So the principle there is that your defense must be informed by the offense. And since we have some of the best attackers in the world, we may as well, you know, leverage that as a service to build these relationships and demonstrate value early before we have to go through some, you know, install installation process for a POV. So that's that's kind of the thought behind those those two offerings and the penetration testing. Yeah, no, for sure. No, that is, um, well, it's exciting, isn't it? It's almost like something that's kind of new and up and coming, but then also there's this penetration testing side of it as well, which is literally clearly going to take off as well, just as just as much as the platform. So you know, it's absolutely awesome, Chuck, really, really awesome. And I know you mentioned there about the, the case study. I, I'm so excited to go through this because I think it's absolutely awesome and, and it kind of a testament to what you guys are actually doing and how important it's going to be as well moving forward. So yeah, just I'll leave it to you to bring it up and talk through it. It's, it's amazing. Sure. So we've got a, a we've got dozens of case studies uh, from from engagements, but the the one that um, uh, that we're talking about now is one that I spoke to at API World and Black Hat and other events. I'm going to be talking to it in Iceland here in a couple of weeks. Um, and this is a, a large bank uh, customer that we uh, that we work with, and they wanted us to assess their their API posture to the outside. And um, it's about a ninety to ninety five billion dollar uh, bank by assets. So banks measure measure themselves by assets under their protection. So uh, when you hear somebody talk about a, a billion dollar bank or a twenty billion dollar bank or a hundred billion dollar bank, they're talking about the assets that they have under their protection. And so a ninety billion dollar bank like this one is not a U.S. bank, by the way. Um, I actually had some regulators in, uh, in Orlando ask me, you know, what bank was this? I was like, it's not under <laughs> your jurisdiction. Don't, 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 don't worry. Um, but I had eight regulators at my booth at the same time uh, at a, uh, at a show in Orlando, learning more about this case study. Uh, by the way, regulatory preparation is something else that we do it with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, but th this would be like a top 45, top 50 bank uh, in the States. So big, big institution It's it's a serious institution. It's, it's, you know, um, uh, about a hundred years old, a little over a hundred years old. So it's not like, you know, Bob's banking and hair care. It's, it's a, it's a real, you know, serious institution, mature security program. And what we did was we went to uh, the outside uh, uh, and just with a limited attack surface, as is often the case. And we started testing the APIs that uh, were supporting their, their application, their web app uh, and their mobile app. And specifically the ones they use for money movement and currency conversions. And so we'll focus in on the currency conversions. So um, whenever you go to uh, convert, you know, dollars to euros or, you know, pounds to yen or whatever you're, you know, you're converting, the, the front end systems, normally your mobile app or your browser interface, they send a request back to a backend API with the, 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 what they want to do and the parameters around it, right? So it's, you know, convert this amount from this currency to this currency and charge this fee and, uh, you know, enforce this minimum and put it back in this account and so forth and so on. So we, we're playing around with what we could, what we could change. And we found that 
like many, many, many companies, they were relying on business logic on front-end systems that we were able to uh, able to modify and, in effect, remove the um, limits uh, or remove the minimums. So normally you can't convert less than, say, $100. Um, we could get it to any amount. Uh, we could remove the fees, which the fee is not only a fee generating service and banks love fee income, but it also serves as a way to make a tax more expensive. So it, it's not worth your while if you have to pay a fee uh, every time, you know, to try to, to exploit some arbitrage, which is what, exactly what we did. Um, the uh, There was no rate limiting in place, uh, and that was a conscious decision. That was on purpose because this is a fee generating service and banks love fees. Uh, and... Um, they had a lot of commercial clients that might do, you know, a lot of these transactions on a daily or a weekly basis, and they didn't want to lock out legitimate traffic. So they, they chose not to implement rate limiting. Uh, and then the fourth piece is not really a bug, but it's a, a function of business logic where uh, but their banking core calculated uh, to six digits uh, past the decimal place. So if you sold a dollar for a euro, you get, for example, 0.922923 euros, and then it rounds up or down to the nearest penny when it actually settles into your account. Um, and so what we were able to do is uh, going directly to the API uh, with a legitimate user account, legitimate password, legitimate token uh, that was us, uh, that was assigned to us. Uh, we were able to submit very small uh, currency conversion uh, you know, requests, um, eliminate the fees, and then script it so we could do it you know, hundreds of millions of times and take advantage of that rounding in our favor. And so the, then the only thing we had to do next was find the right currency pair uh, because you need a currency pair that's just over the halfway point so that it'll round up and you get to, to capture that that rounding. And we found that uh, at the time, selling a, a British pound for a Canadian dollar uh, would give you 1.55 Canadian dollars. So one pound is worth 1.55 um, Canadian dollars. Uh, or if you're able to remove the minimum, you can sell 0 0.01 pounds and get 0 0.0155 Canadian dollars, which the business logic, as is designed, rounds it up to 0 0.02. Now that is the reason I choose this one is this is a great example of a business logic attack. And when you come to my sessions or you see the videos I think that are posted on YouTube, um, we actually show you know what this looks like where you're selling it off the penny at a time and you go from 10,000 pounds to, to 20,000 Canadian dollars. And eventually you run out of currency to sell, but because we made conversions free and nobody's stopping us, they can't see what we're doing anyway, we just converted it back and sold it again. So 10,000 to 20,000 to 40,000 to 80,000 to 100,000, and, and it's, all, it's all scripted. Um, you know, a little bit of Python, but the reason that we have this one scrolling as, as I'm as talking to the audience, you know, which typically at Black Hat, for example, is a bunch of, you know, hackers and defenders and CISOs and security operations folks. What's the hack here? Valid username, valid password, going straight through the web application firewall, straight through the API gateway. It's a, it's a legitimate request. It's an allowed request. The responses back are 200 okay, 200 okay, 200 okay. These are all, none, none of this looks malicious to the devices that the defenders think are protecting them from these you know, external types of attack. And they were completely undetected. Um, and and that is a, an, an example of a logic-based attack, right? We're not uh, cracking passwords. We're not, you know, encrypting your files and trying to ransom them back to you and things. And actually, as I was talking to to the regulators, 
um, you know, I had the same screen scrolling and I asked them, why would I ransom this bank? Why would I announce myself? Like ransomware and denial of service are two very valid things that defenders need to be worried about. But what they have in common is you have to inflict disruption and pain to monetize whatever, you know, malfeasance you're, you're taking part in. Why would I do that? If you expose APIs to the outside world and I can just reach in a window in the bank vault and pull money out. If I can reach in the in, in the, the window in a bank vault and pull money out, I am not going to run in the lobby with a shotgun and yell, everybody <laughs> hit the ground and put myself on camera, right? I'm just going to take the money out. And so we went and we, we did this debrief with the bank. We, we did it to, to prove the point, but not cause a problem. I didn't want to cause a, you know, like office space. This is the same type of attack that was in the movie Office Space or Superman 3. Superman 3 came out in 1983, 40 years ago. And this is the type of attack that Richard Pryor did in that movie. So we've known in banking about salami slicing attacks like this for literally decades. What changed is the attack surface. There was a, When they exposed these APIs, they made the attack surface available again for these, these types of attacks and didn't know it. So we went and we debriefed with the bank and we asked, did you see us? Now, I ran security and fraud for you know a bank that was named Most Trusted Bank in America. Uh, I knew they didn't see it, but... Um, we, we wanted to give them the chance, and they said no. We walked them through exactly what we had done, and we said, when would you have seen this? And they said, give us give us a little time, give us a couple of days, and came back a couple of days later and said, okay, here's what we found out. Whenever we uh, run out of money to do currency conversions uh, in a particular account, in this case, it would have been the, uh, the British pounds account. Um, whenever we run out of money, we need to go buy more pounds like everybody else. I got to go to some other exchange and, and, and buy more money. And, and at that point, we do a look back analysis to understand how much do we need to buy because I don't want to go buying every day and paying commissions. Uh, so how much do I need to have on hand and how much fee income did I generate so that we can gauge profitability of this currency, You know, make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing in the interest of the bank. At that point, we should have seen that we didn't generate the fee income that we expected off of the conversions that led to the draining of that account. And that would have been, in this case, about the $10 million mark. So at about $10 million in losses, we might have seen it via manual look back process. And so the lesson there for me as an attacker is, okay, don't drain the, the, the whole account. And B, whenever the rates in global fluctuations, uh, currency markets fluctuate, uh, the actual attack surface and what accounts I'm pulling money out of changes, even though I'm attacking the same API. Um, I can pull money like so if the if the the carry trade for dollars to yen or something gets favorable to me, then I can exploit that for a while. Uh, and then, you know, maybe the euro to the dollar, you know, hit parity. And as these things change, I'm actually stealing from different accounts, making detection even harder. Um, so I learned lessons on how to, to you know, better attack in the future. And yeah. and we showed and we showed them like how all this works. And then we showed them. If you are using uh, the, the platform like WIBS, you can see the the engineering flaws that we took advantage of, things like no rate limiting, um, uh, like, like set it at 5000 a day. Let's say even high, set it high, you would have lost $50. Like you're, you know, 100, almost $100 billion bank, you can soak $50, right? Um, you can see the design flaws that, that we took advantage of. If you're monitoring your traffic, you should have seen that the requests that we were making to the APIs looked different from the requests that the mobile apps usually send back to the APIs because we omitted those control fields that were enforcing things like minimums and fees. And 
if you were testing, if you were doing, you know, good testing all the way through your cycles, as well as API penetration testing for sophisticated logic-based attacks like this, we could have found this in pre-prod environments, you know, what we call left of boom, uh, rather than waiting for production. Uh, and if you were monitoring traffic and had a baseline of what normal traffic looked like, you should have seen that, you know, one token made the same types of requests like 300 million times. Like all, all, so, so this is the the concept again of of the defense being informed by the offense. If you know how these attacks work, you can build the right controls and telemetry in so that you defend against them, and then just pipe that telemetry into your sim or your SOAR platform, and you know give your 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 fraud teams your sock give them visibility into these interfaces. Because I keep having to remind people, the, the I and API is interface. These are just interfaces that you're exposing to the outside world. And for any threat model, you need to know your actors, assets, interfaces, and actions. Who's doing what to what via what? So we want to give you that intel into your current incident response processes so that you don't have these blind spots. And you can, you know, in, in, the, in the government example, um, you know, where we uh, enumerated all the user accounts and could launch phishing attacks and things like that, that because, just because we were able to ex uh, exploit the API doesn't mean we were going to attack the API on our way to ransomware or whatever. I was going to launch a phishing campaign. So the defenders need to see all of the avenues for attack and piece all these pieces together, including the weaknesses in APIs, so they understand, like, how did they get all of our usernames to launch these types of attacks, right? Attackers tend to think in graphs. They don't care. It's not like they, I'm going to be an API attacker and that's the only thing I'm going to exploit. No, they will exploit anything that's available to them. And we need to provide the visibility for everything that's available. And right now the APIs are, are the blind spots. Like in, in those two case studies, the APIs that were exposed, they were the blind spots and otherwise very mature security uh, programs that, you know, led led to us being able to uh, to, to compromise it. So. Yeah, that this is the type of stuff that that we really enjoy doing, and it also makes these things you know much more concrete and gives specific guidance back to the to the defenders. This is what we need to do to protect against this type of thing. So, yeah, yeah. I kind know of a long answer, but the, the, the yeah. this is the fun. This is this is the fun stuff. It honestly is right. I mean, and 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 filling these gaps and showing these defenders how to uh, you know how to think about these these challenges and the way these attacks work is is just tremendously you know rewarding. Yeah, no, honestly, I can imagine. I think it's it's pretty crazy. I mean, I remember you first going through that that kind of case study with me, and I was kind of shocked at the fact that this is new. This technology is like this API security and the stuff that Web is doing is like the second generation of this. But they, if you think about the world itself, how many of these attacks are actually going to happen in the future, and how can how can we defend against these? It's all about now this next generation, isn't it? So no, that's pretty pretty crazy for sure. Pretty crazy for sure. Yeah. And um, again, it's a testament to Web and what you guys are doing as well. Well, I, th I think that, uh, you know, a big part of it as well is as we're talking to, uh, you know, folks like we're very active in, in FDX, the financial data exchange, trying to create the standards and, and work with, you know, the folks across financial services to create the standards for the financial grade API and, and other ways that we can do this more securely. The question that that I, I tend to try to ask, but um, diplomatically, so I'm not, you know, calling anybody out is if that type of attack were happening at your bank today, would you know it? How would you know it? Do, do you know where, where these types of interfaces are exposed? You know, are you monitoring for things like the baselines that we talked about? And I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but just like, I don't want to walk through some case study and have them go, oh, wow, really suck to be them. So, 
How do you know that that's not happening to you today, right? I mean, as a, I'm not throwing shade at anybody, but as a defender, we 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 learn about these lessons from others because we don't have the time to make all the mistakes ourselves. And it's very much, you know, there but for the grace go I type thing, right? Like, hey, this could be happening to me too. And now I know, I understand that I need to be looking in those spaces. Um, so it's not just an academic thing. It's like, oh, I actually don't know how we would see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I bet it plays uh, quite nicely as well with your background, obviously being a CISO before and then moving into a, a vendor like Web and things like that. I bet it plays quite nicely when you actually go into customers and, and then at partners or whoever it may be and then talking them through your experience as well as what you're now doing. I think that's pretty quite hit home with a lot of these guys as well, won't it? I, I think so. And 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 it's well, it's not a technology thing. Um, I think what what that brings, uh, what I think it, it my background experience helps bring to the table is the understanding that a CISO, they have to make business cases for, for allocation of resources and investment and prioritization. And, you know, the, the dev teams that they're working with or DevOps teams or DevSecOps teams, however they're organized, they already have a laundry list of a million things to do. And, you know, helping to, to inform them and provide that sort of, uh, you know, support and um, internal messaging and things like that, where, you know, they need to go talk to the CIO, they need to go talk to the CFO. Um, and my goal is always to have our customers be the smartest guys and girls in the room, right? So come with data, come with real, you know, insight. This is what we need to do. This is how much we think it's going to cost. This is how long we think it's going to be. These are the things we need to set up on an ongoing basis. Um, it's one of the reasons why WIB is coming to market as we are as a platform instead of a, just a point solution, right? I've said for 20 years as a defender, I want to get 90% out of 10 tools instead yeah. of 10% out of 90 tools. I don't want three API security vendors. Now, maybe you do. Maybe maybe you want to, you know, have a layered approach and have some fallback and not be captive or whatever. That there's valid reasons to have, you know, multiple vendors. But in general, um, if you can get what you need out of a fewer uh, number of tools and vendors to manage and tool sets to manage, then you can really focus on getting the value out of them. And what we do, what, what we do at WIB that I think is going to be hard to replicate in that best of breed model is we take the telemetry from traffic, we take the information from testing, we take the information from code, we put it all together in one engine, and you can't really cobble that together by going to three or four different vendors, right? You're not going to get that synergy. And and we, we want to give them everything they need to know, single source of truth for every Everything about their API ecosystem in one place, and then pipe all the attack information, all the workflow stuff somewhere else, you know, all of those things. Um, but give them as, you know, as much value from one relationship as, as we can give them. And I think that just the reason that I'm bringing it that way is because that's what I wanted. <laughs> that's what I wanted as a, as, as a defender. I, I didn't want, you know, 15 vendor relationships to deal with, with one subject matter area, right? I wanted one. And I wanted to get as much value out of that as I possibly could. And and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And that, that actually moves on to, to an interesting topic. Well, especially what's going to happen is over the next few years and everything in the news about the consolidation of the security market. How do you yeah. think that's going to play then, especially moving over these years? I mean, the likes of Palo Networks and the bigger vendors just completely acquiring everybody they can. But how do you think that will play out? It's a great question. And and what I think that we'll see over the next few years is we'll see con continued consolidation, um, as well as continued creation of new categories from analysts, you know, they're constantly creating new categories and new acronyms that that defenders have to understand, like, what is this? And am I doing this already? Sometimes yeah. it's easier to, uh, to, to put wheels on an airplane than it is to strap wings to a car. 
you know, so, so, so many of the, like the OWASP top 10 for web security, we've been using that model for 20 years, since, since 2003. Um, so ways to defend against SQL injection, cross-site scripting, and, and the, you know, these types of, of attacks, that's kind of commoditized now. Like we know how to do that. Um, it's the logic-based attacks and the advanced stuff that APIs are, are exposing that are the new problems. And so it could be that companies that are good at solving the new problems will be able to also solve the old ones and, and serve as a, a sort of a displacement way to market. So I think there's a, a couple of ways this can play out. I don't think there's going to be necessarily you know one universal trend because this whole industry is so new. I think there's going to be both. But there's no doubt that the the demand and the the need is only increasing. So it's it's only it's only going to be growing. How that growth happens, I think, is going to we're going to find out. We're going to find out over the next few years. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think I think that's quite interesting. Actually, I never I never really thought about that. About um, obviously maybe an API security vendor or, or whoever it is on on the startup world in any area of the technology acquiring other older technologies. I think that's quite cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, and and. If those problems have already been solved and they're not really novel problems anymore, then you know it's going to be a lot easier for companies solving the new problems to get investment. The multiples are going to be higher, and you know if you're solving a twenty-year-old problem, then you know you're, you're largely commoditized in some ways. And it's not taking anything away from those companies; they're doing good work. But you know what? What are investors looking for? Uh, what you know kind of market forces? Where do they want to allocate their their capital? Is generally going to be to the new problems. And that's so we'll we'll see how that plays out. I, I don't know the answer to that yet. I've got some thoughts, but I don't have a crystal ball yet. <laughs> I guess we'll I guess we'll see what happens. But yeah, no, it's yeah. interesting that also just regarding kind of the the future predictions. Then um, I know obviously there's a lot, so much happening in the world right now. We talked a little bit about API and the consolidation of the market. But what other trends or, or things do you think predictions? Sorry, will you see over the coming years? I think we're going to see a lot of really, really impactful and dramatic change in the next, you know, five years or so um, between AI. You know, when you look at, I think everybody probably listening to this podcast has been has been playing with Chat GPT since, uh, you know, since the latest version came out uh, in what, December or late November. Um, GPT four is going to be, you know, going from 175 billion parameters to somewhere between 1 trillion and a hundred trillion. And that's just going to be an absolute sea change. And I don't know how many headlines I've already seen about, uh, you know, Russian attackers leveraging, um, you know, GPT three to craft attacks, social engineering attacks. And we look at the functionality that Microsoft just rolled out with um, sample three seconds of somebody's voice. And this, this model is able to you know, then carry on full conversations in that person's voice. You know, the, the attackers, as always, are going to be adopting this before the defenders uh, have a chance to, 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 to really, you know, bake all of this stuff in. I think that we're going to see a lot of the continued uh, pressures that are driving today's trends. The, the change from monolithic to microservice-based architectures is only going to accelerate because the business value is going to be so much, uh, you know, there's so much there to unlock. And all of this leads to, oh, and, and, and by, by the way, don't forget quantum, quantum uh, cryptography, quantum in uh, uh, computing and, and what that's going to do to cryptography. Um, and, you know, nation states and even some of the big uh, criminal actors have been siphoning up as much encrypted data as they can over the last decade or so, because they know one of these days, 
they're going to be able to decrypt it. And then we're going to have marketplaces of previously stolen, you know, encrypted data that are going to augment the, the criminals, uh, you know, their, their war chest even more. And all of it really leads to the same fundamental challenge that I saw as a defender for, you know, for 20 plus years and, and we still see today. And that is just increasing complexity of the operating environment. And complexity is the enemy of security. Every integration point, every um, you know interface is another avenue for an attacker to take advantage or, or do something malicious. And the environment has never been more complex than it is today, and it's never getting simpler. Right. So, uh, you know, the, when we talk about the rate of change, you know, it's it's moving faster than it ever has, and it's as slow as it's ever going to be again. And I think that those challenges are really going to be the ones that defenders and, and you know companies that serve the defenders like us are going to have to come to grips with this. How, just how do you put these controls and, and this, this assurance in place in, in such an uncertain and, and rapidly evolving environment? And, and we'll solve for it because we have to, but we don't necessarily know how yet. Uh, that, but that, I think the next, the next several years are just going to be just rapid acceleration of these types of things and and how are we going to deal with it um and the old ways aren't going to do it right like the, the, you're never going to be able to use the old technologies and old techniques to solve against novel problems that's that's what we're running into in apis wafs and api gateways were never designed to deal with logic-based attacks against apis they're perfectly good at what they were designed for and they were designed for the problems of their day it's not it's not an indictment of them they they were never designed to understand these new types of attacks and today's technologies are not going to be able to deal with the attacks that we see in three years and five years especially with the the rate of acceleration as well i mean if you look at the past 20 years and what we've come in 20 years imagine the acceleration what we're going to end up in 10 years now so i think um you're right i think the whole it's uh, you can look at it pessimistically or optimistically. It really depends, but uh, it's going to be a crazy, crazy few years for sure. And obviously, people like yourself who are out there in the trenches and doing everything for the industry—it's it's an amazing space to be in. Yeah, and and you know the benefits to humanity from these technologies, at least so far, until we get to a real Terminator to Skynet type, <laughs> you know, uh, AI issue that it's kind of a maybe an issue for a different podcast. But generally speaking, all these technology advances they lead to improvements in the human condition. Right. So it's not like everything's just worse, but the solutions bring new problems. It's like when we first started isolating, you know, uranium, you can blow up a city or you can power a city. There, there's positive and negative applications of the technology. The common element is that there are always humans out there looking to do damage that are going to adopt the, the technology to do damage more quickly than the defenders are going to be able to stop them from doing that. And that's just, that's, that's not a technology problem. That's a part of the human condition. The technology is just the tool that they use. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely going to be an interesting, interesting few years as well. Um, for sure. We head into it, but, but Chuck, honestly, it's been absolutely amazing. And every single time we have a conversation, even when you sent me an article about how uh, APIs can help <laughs> API security and things on those lines with uh, cars hacking and opening cars, oh, yeah. and those lines, that was, that was pretty cool. So um, I'm definitely going to be paying attention to to yourself and Web over the next few years and seeing what you guys are doing, and especially the API, API security market as well. So, no, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for helping you get us the helping us get the message out about API security in general. And uh, you know, any listeners that uh, if you're not sure if you have something you need to be concerned about, give us a call. You know, you don't have to be an API security expert, but uh, you just kind of have to know one. So, uh, you know, we're 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 happy to help.
Awesome. Awesome, Mano. Appreciate it, Chuck. Thank you very much. And uh, maybe we'll do one at the start of next year as well. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks. Bye-bye.